They rigged it. And do not ever think anything differently. Okay, I won't. I'm convinced. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, Radio Sputnik, and many other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and streaming, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Okie dokie. Well, you heard Donald Trump there in the opening uh, claimed uh, claiming they, they rigged it. It was fixed. Don't let him tell you differently. Well, he was talking about the presidential election last year. Actually, he was talking about the presidential primary last year. And uh, I'm sure many of you have thoughts about whether that race, the primary or the presidential election itself, was rigged. We've discussed it in the past on this show many times. We will again in the future, no doubt. But today I want to talk about a couple of other things that may or may not have been rigged, all related to the above. The successful effort to block Obama's nominee Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court for one and the subsequent effort to push Donald Trump's nominee to that Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, uh, through the Republican majority Senate. All, both of those issues, despite the huge unpopularity among the American electorate for both of those unprecedented maneuvers by the GOP to steal the majority on the Supreme Court for decades, that whole process was most definitely rigged. And a new report looking at the outsized influence of huge amounts of dark money spending as revealed, sort of, sort of, on disclosure forms from a, uh, from a tiny handful of, of literally closely related millionaires and billionaires helped to rig that entire shameful process in favor of Republicans and their theft of the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll speak to two journalists from maplight.org about their new disturbing findings there. And while we don't yet, in, in, and in truth, we may never know if the 
Uh, the special U.S. special election last June for the U.S. House of Representatives in Georgia's 6th District. We may not ever know if that was uh, rigged or not, given the type of voting systems that they use there. Uh, but we've got uh, we've been covering this uh, race a lot since well before it it happened. Uh, well, we've got another very disturbing development in that election, in that uh, lawsuit meant to try and find out if that election was rigged and meant to try to keep further elections in the peach state from potentially being rigged in a way that the public cannot oversee it and the, the public may never know one way or another. Details on that uh, momentarily. Also, uh, Desi Doyen, you will be joining. Hello, Desi yes, Doyen. Hello. Uh, we will uh, have another Green News report coming up a little bit later in the show. Yep. A lot to cover in that report, uh, including this mysterious $300 million contract, actually $500 million to repair. When you add them all up, yep, yeah. To uh, repair Puerto Rico's electric grid. A very strange story. Uh, and, you know, the. <laughs> This report got very little attention this week from the nonpartisan GAO, the Government Accountability Office, finding that climate disasters have already cost the U.S. taxpayers some $350 billion. That, even as Republicans are now trying to pass this new, uh, pass a new budget with these huge tax cuts in it. Uh, and, you know, and they're wrestling over billions, trillions of dollars. Well, you know what? They might have been able to save $350 billion had they taken action on uh, climate change long ago. So that and much more in our Green News report coming up. But I want to get straight to Georgia here um, because this is really disturbing. Coming from AP today, it would be one thing if it was coming from me here on the broadcast and at bradblog.com where we have been telling you exactly about this, but now it's coming from AP. So good. They're finally paying attention, and we have a... A disturbing development in this story. So let me start with AP. A computer server crucial to a lawsuit against Georgia election officials was quietly wiped clean by its custodians just after the suit was filed. The Associated Press has learned the server's data was destroyed on July 7 by, technician, by technicians at the Center for Elections Systems at Kennesaw State University which runs the state's election system, runs the entire election system for the entire state. The voter registration system, programming of the voting systems, the tabulation systems, and so forth. AP reports the data wipe of this server was revealed in an email sent last week from an assistant state attorney general to plaintiffs in that case. More emails obtained in a public records request confirmed the wipe. The lawsuit, filed by a diverse group of election reform advocates, aims to force Georgia to retire its antiquated and heavily criticized election technology. It's a nice way to put it. The server in question, which served as a statewide staging location for key election-related data, made national headlines in June after a security expert disclosed a gaping security hole, hole that was not fixed six months after he reported it to election authorities at the Center for Election Systems at Kennesaw State University. Now, the complete wipe of data on the server on July 7 of this year, 
That followed just days after the U.S. House special election runoff in Georgia's 6th congressional district between Karen Handel, the former Georgia Republican Secretary of State, and her challenger Democratic candidate John Ossoff, who had mounted a very strong challenge for that seat. Uh, He received just barely under 50 percent of the vote during the open primary back in April for this race. Had he received more than 50 uh, percent in that runoff, uh, uh, well, had in that original primary. open primary, right, a runoff would have then been avoided. Originally, the GOP was split between more than a dozen candidates back in the primary in April, and John Ossoff looked like he was going to get more than 50 percent at one point, and then, what do you know, for several hours... Uh, in Fulton County, the tabulation system went down for some reason. And uh, at that point, I believe, when it, when the system went down, Ossoff actually had more than 50%. But then it came up and he had just under 50%, leading to the runoff in June, which it looked like he was going to win. Uh, but then, according to the state's 100% unverifiable voting system in the state of Georgia, where they use these... Uh, decades old, but damn near about 15-year-old Diebold touchscreen systems, uh, he ended up being announced the loser. And we've had this lawsuit ever since. And now we find out that uh, someone at the state of Georgia at Kennesaw State University completely wiped the server clean. Now, we had one of the in, in the middle of this lawsuit about this election. Now, we had one of the plaintiffs, Marilyn Marks of the coalition uh, for good governments on this show uh, shortly after she filed her lawsuit against the state of Georgia as well. We've had Garland Favorito from Georgia's nonpartisan election integrity watchdog group, Voter GA. By the way, Marilyn Marks, she's a Republican. I don't know what uh, Garland is, but she's a Republican who filed this lawsuit along with a number of others. Um, we've had them uh, both on this show. Garland uh, was on this show to discuss the massive data breaches that occurred prior to the election that was initially discovered last year before the 2016 presidential election in Georgia, but it was covered up by Kennesaw State University's Election Center, which is contracted to program all of Georgia's 100% unverifiable and extremely hackable D-Bold touchscreen voting systems that are used across the entire state. Now, I've been speaking with both of them, uh, as well as other voting system experts, since this AP story came out about the server being wiped. Um, Very disturbing news today, as I see it, and we will be covering this in an upcoming program some more. Uh, Poor Marilyn. I talked to Marilyn today. She has laryngitis today. Oh, man. What a day to have it. Uh, exactly. Not a good day for her, for radio, and particularly not good on a day that she's been uh, trying to field tons of calls on this from all kinds of media that is just finally deciding to pay attention to this one. For now, then, uh, a bit more of what we know uh, from the AP story today. Uh, they write that uh, they report it's not clear who ordered the server's data to be irretrievably erased. The uh, the Kennesaw Elections Center answers to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, uh, a Republican who is running for governor in 2018 in the state of Georgia on this same system as of now. Uh, he's the main defendant in this suit. A spokesman for the Secretary of State's office said on Wednesday <clears throat> to the AP, quote, we did not have anything to do with this decision. 
adding that the office also had no advance warning of the move. So this, if they can be trusted, and I see no reason why anyone should, but if they can be trusted, that means that Kennesaw State itself, the election center there, wiped out, for some reason, the entire server in the middle of this lawsuit. The center's director, uh, Michael Barnes, referred questions to the university's press office, which they then declined to comment. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit, who are mostly Georgia voters, want to scrap the state's 15-year-old voting system, vote management system, particularly its 27,000 AccuVote touchscreen voting machines, which I'm glad to see uh, AP uh, describes as hackable devices. Thank you, AP. Hackable devices that don't use paper ballots or keep hard copy proof of voter intent, which is why I always describe these systems as 100% unverifiable. The plaintiffs in this case were counting on an independent security review uh, of that server at Kennesaw, which held also uh, held electronic poll book data and ballot definitions for counties. What are ballot definitions? Well, those are that's the actual programming, the memory cards that are then, uh, you know, that that who who is running in the race for what contest, uh, contest, etc. Those memory cards are then put into those touchscreen voting systems. Uh, and all of this is done at Kennesaw. If you access this server, you can presumably hack any of these uh, uh, these systems at all. AP says wiping the server clean, quote, forestalls any forensic investigation at all. According to Richard DeMilo, a Georgia Tech computer scientist who has closely followed this case, he says people who have nothing to hide don't behave this way. The server data could have revealed whether Georgia's most recent elections, that would be the uh, runoff as well as the presidential election, were compromised by malicious hackers. But, of course, they wiped it out. The plaintiffs contend that the results of both last November's election and the special June 20 congressional runoff won by Kemp's predecessor, Karen Handel, cannot be trusted. Marilyn Marks tells AP in the uh, in today's story, uh, Marilyn said, I don't think you you could find a voting systems expert who would think the deletion of the server data was anything less than insidious and highly suspicious. It could still be possible to recover relevant information from the server, AP reports. The FBI is known to have made an exact data image of the server back in March when it investigated the security hole. This was back when it was discovered that all of this information was just sitting there was just sitting there on this server, the voter registration data, the uh, passwords for these voting systems. So the FBI was finally called in months after Kennesaw State had initially been informed about this. The FBI came in and uh, reportedly, and in anyway here, they made a, a data image of that server back when they came to investigate this security hole. The email that disclosed that the server had been wiped out said that the attorney gen- the state attorney general's office was, quote, reaching out to the FBI to determine whether they still have that data image, that copy of the server. The Atlanta FBI spokesman, Stephen Emmett, uh, responded to AP's question but would not say whether that image still exists. 
So who knows whether the FBI wiped it as well. At this point, we don't. Nor would he say whether agents examined it to determine whether the server's files might have been altered by unauthorized users. What we do know is that uh, neither the Department of Homeland Security or the FBI, but specifically the DHS, which oversees all of these uh, agencies, the DHS has said back in July of this year that they did not look at any of these servers, any of these voting systems. They did not count any ballots for the, uh, for the 2016 presidential election, which DHS has subsequently said uh, Russia had tried to manipulate in some way. Well, okay, if Russia tried to manipulate that election in some way, how do you explain the fact that the DHS has never actually looked at these voting systems and these computer tabulation systems to find out if, in fact, someone manipulated them, whether they were from outside the country or inside the country? which is a far easier way to manipulate these systems. The folks at Kennesaw State University have direct access to these systems. They can change the results of an election in Georgia, whether it's the presidential election across the state or whether it's the, the special election for U.S. House. They can change those results in seconds in a way that would be uh, virtually impossible, if not completely impossible, to discover. Unless there was some sort of forensic examination, and the ability to do that now has been greatly constrained by what Kennesaw State University themselves have done. Other backups also appear to be gone, AP reports. In the same email to plaintiff's attorneys, Assistant State Attorney General uh, Christina Correa wrote that two backup servers were also wiped clean. Those on August 9, just as the lawsuit moved to federal court. So they wiped out the main server in July, uh, just two weeks or so after the uh, House election, and then they wiped out the backups to that uh, one month later on August 9. Kennesaw State University's uh, election center's uh, top official, Merle King, he has been one of the top defenders of these 100% unverifiable systems for years now. He appears as an expert witness in courts and at uh, official hearings, etc. He, uh, he had been told about the vulnerabilities of that database being online, unprotected, including millions of voter records and ballot definition files, uh, for the uh, state's touchscreen systems and their tabulators and the passwords of them. He had been told about this last year, but King apparently both covered up the vulnerability and did not fix it for almost a year prior to uh, prior to both last year's presidential election and this year's special house election in the in the sixth district. So as a result of Kennesaw State's failed effort to secure the information, AP notes sensitive data on Georgia's 6.7 million voters, including Social Security numbers, party affiliation and birth dates, as well as passwords used by county officials to access election management files. Those remained online exposed for months. That problem was first discovered by Atlanta security researcher Logan Lamb who happened across it while he was doing online research back in August of 2016. He told the uh, election center's director at the time, Merle King, noting in an email that, quote, there is a strong possibility your site is already compromised. Based on his review of the email, Lamb uh, now believes that electronic polling books could have been altered 
in Georgia's biggest counties to add or drop voters or to scramble their data. Malicious hackers, AP reports, could also have attempted, could also have altered the templates of those memory cards used in the voting machines to skew results. An attacker could have even modified those ballot building files to corrupt the count. But it will now be impossible to know for sure unless the FBI provides a copy of the server image for analysis, reports AP. As I said, we're going to cover this story more in the future. Hopefully Maryland's uh, voice comes back soon. Uh, we'll continue to cover this story as we have now for months. And hopefully in the days ahead, we'll be able to speak to to Maryland and some of the other folks who are working on uh, on this story from a number of different angles, which are all particularly important as we head into another election year. And these same systems are still used in Georgia and equally easily manipulated computer voting and paper ballot optical scan computer tabulators are also used in all 50 states in this country. So, yes, more on that ahead. Uh, in the days ahead. But speaking of the theft of what is supposed to be representative American democracy, let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with how millions in dark money were spent essentially to buy the U.S. Supreme Court now for generations. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh, yeah, it's hysterical. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. As we reported at bradblog.com many, many moons ago, many years ago, way, way back in 2011, during the now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's initially highly contentious confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate back in 1991, so we're going back even further, uh, those old enough to remember will recall the charges of sexual harassment that were levied against uh, th uh, th Thomas by Anita Hill and others in the middle of that very dramatic process. Well, during that contentious process to place one of the court's most extreme right-wingers on the high court for a lifetime appointment, Thomas received a huge boost when an outside organization ran some $100,000 worth of ads on television and newspapers and so forth attacking those U.S. senators who were threatening to vote against Thomas's confirmation due to those very serious charges of sexual harassment by those who had worked under him for years. The uh, paid ads worked, however. The outside group's $100,000, which was a lot of money for such an ad campaign at the time, 
was very well spent, even though the Senate was at the time under George H.W. Bush's uh, uh, administration. It was controlled by Democrats. The chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time was one senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. Whatever happened to him? The uh, the committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee and then the full U.S. Senate ended up confirming Thomas's nomination for his lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court, despite all of the controversy. The outside organization that had spent all of that money to help ensure Thomas's confirmation, it was a newly formed nonprofit group that called itself Citizens United. Twenty years later, in 20, 2010, and without either Thomas disclosing it or recusing himself from the matter, or anyone in the corporate media really apparently connecting the dots, Thomas joined a slim 5-4 to four Supreme Court majority in favor of the group in the now famous Citizens United versus Federal Elections Commission case, which has since, as you may have noticed, allowed a tsunami of corporate outside spending into our political and electoral system. It was that decision in 2010 and a few other related ones which allowed corporations and individual millionaires and billionaires to pour virtually unlimited so-called dark money into taxpayer-subsidized, supposedly uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit 501c organizations that could, in turn, use the money to affect elections with millions of dollars in campaign ads for or against anyone they may wish to and avoid campaign finance spending limits pretty much entirely in the bargain. Uh, for the record, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, created one of those 501c organizations herself just after oral arguments were heard before her husband in the Citizens United case in 2009, and she somehow managed to raise some $550,000 for herself and that group in about two months' time before the end of the year. Well, in any event, move the clock forward from 1991's assist to Clarence Thomas through the 2010 Citizens United ruling to the February 2016 surprise death of the other most right-wing member of the court, Justice Antonin Scalia, and the unprecedented nearly year-long obstruction by Senate Republicans preventing uh, a, a sing even a single confirmation hearing for then-President Barack Obama's eminently qualified centrist nominee to fill Scalia's vacancy, the chief U.S. Circuit Court judge for the District of Columbia, Judge Merrick Garland. Rather than holding a hearing, as you recall, much less uh, much less a vote on Garland, Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell obstructed the entire process. He refused to allow a vote at all, which almost certainly would have resulted in a five to four majority for the uh, for Democratic appointees on the Supreme Court. And of course, you know the rest. Donald Trump was announced the winner of the 2016 election later that year. After his inauguration, he nominated the radical right-winger Neil Gorsuch for that seat. And after McConnell and the Republicans changed the rules of the U.S. Senate to avoid a filibuster for Supreme Court justices, Gorsuch was confirmed to what I regard as a stolen U.S. Supreme Court seat and now a stolen Re Republican majority on that court. But McConnell didn't do it alone. 
He and his Republican colleagues did not withstand the public pressure, and there was much of it against them, uh, to hold hearings on Obama's nominee Garland for nearly a year. They didn't do that by themselves, nor did they overcome public pressure against Trump's nominee Gorsuch by themselves. They had help. Lots of it. According to a new report from Margaret Sessa Hawkins and Andrew Perez at maplight.org, a nonpartisan public interest research organization that shines a light on money's influence in politics, their new report finds that help came in the form of millions of dollars, if not actually millions of people, to keep Garland out and then to help put Gorsuch in. Both of them now join me to discuss their new findings. Margaret Sessa Hawkins has worked for the uh, PBS NewsHour, the BBC, and our Pacifica Radio Network sister station, WPFW, in Washington, D.C. She now reports for Maplight, along with Andrew Perez, who previously worked for Public Citizen, Huffington Post, IBT Media, and now as a staff political reporter at maplight.org. Their new article this week, Dark Money Group Received Massive Donation in Fight Against Obama's Supreme Court Nominee, was a project of Maplight's Dark Money Watch. Margaret Sessa Hawkins and Andrew Perez, uh, welcome both of you to the broadcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you, too. Uh, I want to discuss what you guys found uh, via disclosure forms, if we can call them that, uh, regarding both the, the blocking of Obama's nominee Garland and then the, uh, the help that Republicans received in putting Gorsuch onto the, onto the bench for life and what seems to me, frankly, to be... An, an obscene process to fund it all behind the scenes. So, Margaret, uh, let me start with you and uh, and the process to block Garland in the first place. That uh, $100,000 of ads and commercials that I mentioned from the group Citizens United to put Clarence Thomas on the bench back in 1991 seems almost quaint now by comparison to what you guys found. Yeah, so we found um, $7 million that was spent by the group Judicial Crisis Network. And we actually found that that's what they reported in mm -hmm. their own press release. Um, what was being reported in the media before them was about $4 million. Um, it's actually pretty hard to track these ads. You have to go through the FCC because they're issue ads. They're not reported to the FEC. Um, so we were interested in seeing where that $7 million came from. Mm -hmm. And when they released their tax form, we took a look at that and we requested the Schedule B for their tax form, which shows donations. It doesn't have the names or addresses. Obviously, they don't have to release those publicly, mm -hmm. but it does show you any amount over $5,000 that came in. And when we looked at that, we found three donations, one of which was for $17.9 million. So that one obviously stood out for us pretty quickly. $17.9 million. And I'm looking at the form you guys included in your article, it, seem, it doesn't tell us anything. It tells us uh, we've got here, uh, for example, three different donations, one for looks like $25,000, another for eight, uh, what is it, six six $600,000, and then that donation 600, for... $600,000. Yeah. And then one for seventeen point nine. But it doesn't tell us who it came from. It's completely blank. It's just a number. It's seemingly meaningless. And then you say we only know that they spent $7 million to stop Gorsuch because they uh, proudly bragged about it in a, in a press release? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> uh, Andrew, the, uh, 
So that was the process of, of blocking Garland. Um, it, it was successful, but it also appears to have helped raise money in the process to then stop uh, or then to help uh, the installation of Gorsuch into that uh, stolen seat. Andrew, do we know how much was then spent uh, on that part of the effort by the same group? Uh, yeah, so again, it's going to be according to what, what they... Uh, the organization has said, but they they spent ten million to uh, to help uh, Gorsuch get confirmed. And uh, you know, once once he was, they then uh, ran ads like thanking uh, senators for voting for him, especially like the three Democrats who crossed over to vote for him. Who is this Judicial Crisis Network, as they call themselves, or JCN? And and what did you learn about their funding for all of this? Uh, is there any way to tell where these donations, this, again, $17.9 million donation actually comes from, Andrew? Well, so not yet, um, but we, we, we you know, I, I think everyone kind of has a feeling where the money came from just because um, most of its funding in the past has come from a, another nonprofit called the Wellspring Committee, and, uh, you know, the organizations both um, uh, are, are, like, tied personally mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, they like the wife of, uh, or, or sorry, this, this woman, Ann Corkery, who works for Wellspring Committee, her husband is, is Judicial Crisis Network's treasurer, and then the, the only other two officials related that, that are on any of these organizations' boards um, are also related, uh, and they both operate out of a, uh, a UPS store in, in Georgetown. That they, They've listed, uh, both organizations have listed this store as their address, but um, you know, the, it, basically, both organizations are close to a to just a total black hole, and uh, especially the Wellspring Committee, it's it's just very, uh, very unclear who is who is donated to to the organization. They haven't, uh, you know, no other organizations have reported donating to it since uh, 2011. You know, since it's like spending spiked, so it's. Uh, you know, both both organizations are just pulling in tons and tons of dark money, uh, with with basically no transparency. M- Margaret, we uh, we hear the term, of course, dark money a lot. Um, but uh, you know, what does it really mean? If we're able to see the uh, this disclosure form from JCN, uh, and presumably, is there a disclosure form from Wellspring that we can also look at? Uh, to determine where their money came from and who they gave their money to in this uh, among amongst this network. So that actually is two points that I want to address. Mm-hmm. Um, Wellspring does and is going to. So both organizations will release what's called a 990 tax form, mm-hmm. which they give to the IRS, which tells you how much money they raised throughout the year, and it tells you what other organizations they gave the money to. So if they gave money to nonprofit organizations such as 501c4s or 501c3s or 501c6s, so any of these organizations that are in the C class of organizations, then that will be reported. Also, if they gave money to um, other forms of political organizations um, such as 527s. So we do have that information. You can track group-to-group donations. However, there's a huge lag time between when they're doing the spending mm-hmm. and when we're getting a hold of these tax forms. So, for example, we're looking at Judicial Crisis Network's tax form. Mm-hmm. It's from June 30th, 2016, 
is what we're looking at the latest date. So there's a huge lag time for us in terms of seeing what spending they're doing. And then to a certain extent, they can choose their own tax years. So one of the problems we had in reporting this story was, as Andrew mentioned, we're pretty sure that that $17.9 million donation came from Wellspring. But Wellspring's tax year is off from JCN's by half a year. Yeah. And so we can't actually check the donation yet because their form isn't coming out for another month. And we can't check previous donations against stuff that JCN has said they've received because the amounts will be different because their forms are off by half a year. Would we expect to see, once uh, Wellspring Committee's uh, forms are available, will we, would we expect to see actual names, actual human beings who, who made up this, uh, potentially, if, if they were the ones who gave them this $17.9 million, will we see actual names, or will it be yet another uh, organization that gave them the money or just, uh, again, another number without uh, putting it next to anybody. In other words, I'm trying to figure out, are these actual you know, human beings? Is there uh, hundreds and thousands of, uh, of supporters of this group? Or is this just, you know couple of family members uh andrew mentioned uh, you know a couple a couple of them are who are married or another one is father and son uh, w- will we ever get to the end of this black hole uh, probably, probably not so <laughs> go ahead margaret yeah with wellspring committee it's um it's an exceptionally dark group and so that money could be coming from people it could be coming from corporations um we don't really know all we can see when we see their form is we can see if other nonprofits are giving to them from the nonprofits forms. And we haven't really, again, as Andrew mentioned, since 2011, we haven't seen that. So all we see when we look at the form is a number, an amount of money, if it's over 5000 that was given to them. And the name and address and any other information is redacted. That information only goes to the IRS. So with Wellspring, people have tried really hard to figure out where their money's coming from, and we just have not been able to get anywhere. Uh, Andrew, to, to be fair, uh, of course, it's, it's not only Republicans who have set up these sorts of groups and these sorts of networks, these dark money networks. Do we see the same, uh, a similar equivalent of the sort of a similar uh, dark operations that are meant to help Democrats that are similar black holes when, when you look at them? And are they as effective as these groups seem to be? Uh, you know, there just aren't any organizations that are, like, organized or funded to the extent uh, that you see on the uh, the Republican side. Um, you know, the conservative movement has, has worked, like, really hard over the last, uh, like, decade to, to develop, a, you know, just, a, like, a strong outside money network. Mm-hmm. Um, Democrats definitely, you know, have benefited from outside money um, and have you know, started, like, many super PACs. Like, obviously, there were, uh, like, President Obama and uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 both, uh, you know, saw support from, uh, like, one of the same super PACs. And, uh, and of course, you know, they're going to be started by people close to the to the candidates. But, um, you know, th- th- there is some dark money. For instance, like, there's, uh, you know, like, David Brock, um, you know, pretty well-known mm-hmm. um, liberal... Um, activist has a has a you know fairly substantial network of, of organizations, but um, you know the money is just smaller, and uh, 
yeah, mm-hmm. they, they just don't have quite the same impact as you see on the right. When uh, Citizens United was decided, Andrew, uh, the majority said that spending like this was free speech and that, uh, you know, that uh, that a public spotlight, however, on this sort of spending would be more than adequate to to keep things in check. Has anything like that that the uh, that the court, uh, you know, claimed with their decision on this has anything like that proven to be even vaguely true? Yeah, not not at all. I mean, you know, on, on one level, again, you have candidates who um, or, or like outside groups mm-hmm. that are formed by like you know former advisors or like even like family members of of um, outside groups. Like so. Uh, like that that's become very common for there to be like what you, what you'd call like a single candidate super PAC that's mm-hmm. just very tight with a candidate um that basically is you know like being used to outsource operations of a campaign so in that that whole that just undercuts the kind of premise that uh in the citizens united case that like independent expenditures are are made independently that just has not been borne out um and, and you know the other thing is that like there's just has been very little movement towards additional transparency. You know, a lot of rules, like a lot of campaign finance rules, probably need to be updated and have not been since since uh, Citizens United. So, you know, what you see is just that you know, big money has is just flow is just flooding into the system, and and it's very you know very very hard to figure out if you know if impossible like where it's coming from. It's absolutely maddening. Uh, Margaret, it's not just the, in this case here, with this group, Judicial Crisis Network, and this sort of mystery money, this one mystery funder of 17 point, whatever it was, $17.9 million. Uh, it's not just the Supreme Court that these this group is, is uh, putting their money into. Uh, they're also uh, passing this these funds forward to other groups around the country. To affect other elections for, um, well, to affect elections for in, in those states where they hold Supreme Court elections and so forth, correct? Yeah. Um, so I think this is something that has been sort of reported with JCN, but isn't getting as much traction as the national stories, mm-hmm. which is that they do quite a bit of spending at the state level. Um, And what we find when we look at outside spending at the state level is that it is way more potent. Mm. Um, So they did when we looked at their spending, we found that they spent slightly more in the states last year than they spent on um, trying to stop Garland's confirmation. Really? Um, So yeah, yeah. So what they did was they, in some cases, spent directly on state campaigns. So, for example, they gave 300000 to a campaign to not overturn the death penalty uh, in Nebraska. Mm. And they gave 200 But then sometimes they were giving money through other groups. So they gave 200000 to the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce, and that was used directly to support a candidate in a race um, they gave $1.4 million to the Wisconsin Alliance for Reform, mm-hmm. which then spent $1.5 million to re-elect a Supreme Court justice there, which helped to solidify a conservative majority on the court. They give a lot of money to some fairly well-known 
state Republican organizations. So the Republican Governors Association, the Republican State Leadership Committee, which was the biggest outside spender last year in state judicial races. Um, yeah, so they're doing a lot of state spending. And you mentioned that one in Wisconsin because we've covered Wisconsin and the, uh, the the Supreme Court up there where Scott Walker had appointed this uh uh, Justice Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley. Rebecca Bradley. Yeah, and and then she yeah. was, uh, then she had to actually run because she was filled. Uh, he appointed her to fill a vacancy, and then she actually had to run. And uh, you cite uh, her description of uh, what she once called a former President Bill Clinton quote a tree hugging, baby killing, pot smoking, flag burning, queer loving, bull spouting, '60s radical socialist adulterer. And uh, then uh, then this group spent one point five million to get her elected. And what is somewhat maddening about it is that these groups are supposedly nonpartisan groups uh, that are only doing, you know, social welfare work or that's what they're supposed to be doing in exchange for this tax exempt status that they enjoy from the federal government. They are anything but nonpartisan groups, it seems to me, Rebecca, uh, Margaret. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think. One thing that for a lot of campaign finance watchdogs has been really frustrating is these groups are only supposed to spend 50% of their money. About half. So basically, they are not supposed to have um, mm-hmm. politics be their majority purpose. Um, and the, the rule of thumb has kind of been 50%. Don't spend more than 50% of your money on political, directly political activity. So Mm -hmm. political advocacy, basically. You can do issue advocacy, but political advocacy should only be 50%. But there's a lot of loopholes. So, for example, all the money I was just citing that Judicial Crisis Network was giving to these other very political organizations, um, the Governor's Association, Mm -hmm. the Republican Attorney General Association, obviously those organizations are political that still wouldn't count towards the 50%. So as long as they're spending this money on issue ads, for example, judicial elections would be issue ads, Mm -hmm. um, you're safely not doing political activity. So essentially, you've had the emergence of extremely political partisan groups that still manage by these loopholes to be considered social welfare organizations. And uh, if you go back to the actual way the law is written for those, uh, and these are groups, remember, that pretend to uh, believe in the rule of law and the way the rule, the law is actually written. Well, the law actually says that all of this spending must be exclusively on social welfare issues, not on elections. That was somewhat changed by the IRS to be primarily on social welfare, and that's where you come up with that 50% number, but uh, even that has been ignored. These guys are just, it seems to me, out and out, doing politics uh, with as much money as they can muster from, uh, presumably, from millionaires and billionaires, but we can't even find that out. Uh, Andrew, we've got just a a minute or so left here. Uh, Folks hearing this conversation must think, well, you know, the entire American system of elections and the judiciary is, uh, as as uh, Trump, Donald Trump suggested last year, rigged. Is it? And if so, what can we as Americans do about any of this at this point, Andrew? 
yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty easy to get that impression. I, I mean, you know, I think it's, you know, at least like for us as journalists, I think it's important to, you know, expose like influence every, every time we can. Um, even if it, you know, might kind of look like the same old, same old to people, I think it, it's really, you know, vital for us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, there's a lot of, you know, campaign finance organizations that are, that are that are worth supporting. Um, obviously, you know, we we work for an organization called Maplight, but uh, there, there are plenty others. Um, and you know, I think it's it's important for people to talk about, uh, like amongst themselves. You know, I, I, like polls always show that people are really dissatisfied with. You know Washington, and also with um, you know just how the campaign finance system works, and I, I think it's important to for for people to try to organize around the issue if they if they want to change it. Andrew Perez uh, and Margaret Sessa Hawkins, uh, thanks both for uh, doing what you're doing and shining a light wherever you can, and and trying to make this. Yeah, in one sense, I think. People understand this issue, uh, but I think, you know, when we see reports like yours, we're reminded of just how obscene and just how terrible this is. And frankly, how much uh, something needs to be done about it. Margaret Sessa Hawkins and Andrew Perez, you can find them. Uh, their story, Dark Money Group Received Massive Donation in Fight Against Obama's Supreme Court Nominee. You can find that at maplight.org, who you can and should follow on the Twitters at simply maplight. Uh, Margaret and Andrew, greatly appreciate both of you joining us here today, and uh, please stay in touch as you continue to shine this spotlight. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Boy, you know what? Everything on uh, today's show you might have known about months and months ago, years ago, had you read bradblog.com and listened to the Bradcast. Glad that everyone else is starting to notice. Quick break, and we are back with more. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com donate, and thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Desi Doyen, uh, on our uh, on our Green News report a few days ago, we, we talked about how this was the hottest World Series in history because of this, what were we at, uh, 104, 105 yes. out here in Los Angeles? Yes, a couple game of days one ago. and two between uh, the Dodgers and the Astros. And so you had this crazy game two of the World Series on Wednesday night, uh, eight home runs. Eight home runs, a record for the number of home runs. It was really hot, a really hot night. And I uh, said after the game, I wonder if that had to do with the heat. Now you say that actually science writers are, are saying it may at that? have indeed. Andrew Friedman at Mashable.com. He's a science editor. He says extreme heat may have led to the record number of home runs that were in game two of the World Series because it turns out that higher temperatures allow balls to fly a bit farther than they would otherwise in colder, denser air. They might not have made the wall in they colder not, yeah. temperatures. Well, so there you go. See, another upside for climate change global warming at least if you're 
from Houston, I guess. Uh, all right, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. There's a lot that's head-scratching about this contract. Tiny Montana Company's mysterious $300 million contract to repair Puerto Rico's electric grid. A bleak picture of the economic cost of climate change. GAO reports climate disasters have already cost U.S. taxpayers $350 billion. I appreciate and I respect both sides of the science. Trump's U.S. ambassador to Canada invents new form of climate denial. Plus, we're going to get more and more of these extreme events. On the fifth anniversary of Superstorm Sandy, new study warns no U.S. city is prepared for climate change impacts. Hey, happy anniversary. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I cut more regulations in nine months than any president has cut during the entire term that they're in. Dump anything you want into the drinking water, because you know what they say, when life hands you paint thinner, make people drink paint thinner aid. Don't give me any ideas. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, still trying to make sense of this really strange, really bizarre story from Puerto Rico and Whitefish, Montana. Yes, congressional lawmakers are calling for a review of a huge $300 million contract that was awarded to a tiny two-year-old Montana company, Whitefish Energy Holdings, to repair Puerto Rico's electric grid without a competitive bidding process and despite its lack of experience handling such massive projects. They had only two people there when they got this project, right? That's right. So, Desi, you and I could have done that contract for... $150 $150 million. <laughs> Easily. FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers say they were surprised by the unusual arrangement. Whitefish has links to Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke being located in his hometown, but the Interior Department denied any involvement. The Puerto Rico Power Authority, PREPA, said Whitefish had already bid on reconstruction after Hurricane Irma and were the fastest to respond. Now, Whitefish isn't the only small company getting an unusually massive contract for Puerto Rico, Cobra Acquisitions of Oklahoma, the home state of Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt, also signed a $200 million contract to repair the island's electric grid. Home state of Zinke, home state of Pruitt, $500 million between them. Total coincidence, I assume. Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosseo has defended the contract, but on Wednesday he said his administration will review PREPA's contracting practices. Good. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Financial Oversight Board that's overseeing Puerto Rico's financial crisis is installing an emergency manager over the island's electric utility with the explicit goal of fully privatizing the public power company. Former Puerto Rico Power Commissioner Ramon Cruz tells the Green News Report, quote, This decision is unfortunate. What Puerto Rico needs is more transparency in the decision-making process about its future, not an unelected board. Meanwhile, October 29th marks the fifth anniversary of Superstorm Sandy at a thousand miles wide, the largest hurricane ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean that caused the worst flooding in New York and New Jersey state history and one of the most expensive weather disasters ever to hit the United States. A new study published this week concludes that Sandy-like catastrophic floods are likely to become much more frequent due to rising sea levels and will do that soon, projecting that, for example, costly floods that now strike 
strike the New York City area once every 25 years could hit once every five years by Mm. 2040. And they warn, no U.S. coastal city is prepared. And now a report by the nonpartisan Government Accountability Office released this week warns that failure to confront climate change has already cost taxpayers more than $350 billion over the last decade. How much? $350 billion in 10 years, paid in direct disaster aid, crop insurance, floods, wildfires, and repairs to federal infrastructure caused by weather disasters that scientists concluded were worsened by climate change. Yeah, but ExxonMobil stock is up. The GAO projects that the burden on taxpayers will grow rapidly by mid-century. The GAO says there are uncertainties in its predictions, but it's known for being quite conservative in its estimates. So it turns out it's actually more expensive to not act on climate change. As you have told us. And finally, despite the GAO's warning, the Trump administration is doubling down on climate science denial. New U.S. ambassador to Canada and former Republican fundraiser Kelly Kraft, who happens to be married to a billionaire coal baron, (laughs) tried out a new stance on climate denial in an interview with the CBC. I believe there are sciences that are both on both sides that are accurate. Both sides have, you know, they have their own um, results from their studies, and and I appreciate and I respect both sides of the science. (laughs) So this woman thinks there's good evidence that the Earth is both flat and round. Both sides. Well done. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Okay. No, I'm not going crazy. <laughs> I'm just fine. Uh, thank you very much, Desi Doyen, yep. our producer, and uh, to our guests today, Margaret Sessa Hawkins and Andrew Perez of MapLight.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. You can drop me an email if you like. Always love to hear from you. Can't always reply, but I try to. Uh, I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and share our work uh, far and wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. My thanks to all of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do here on the air and at bradblog.com as we have for the past, what, almost 15 years now. Yep. Thank you. Bradblog.com slash donate. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 